When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <gasps> Michael. Hi. Yes. We did it, we guys. We did it. We did it. Okay, now, should I be intimidated by Michael's headset microphone, or should I feel like I'm better than him? I would go with the latter. I look much more like the Verizon help desk than you do. <laughs> so I think you're definitely winning. <laughs> Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. Today, we're going to talk about the underappreciated power of humor in good times and bad, which means we're going to laugh a lot. Just know that. But first, I want to take you back to 1999. It's about a decade after the official end of the Cold War with Russia. Relations are beginning to thaw, but old habits die hard, and Moscow has crossed a major line. They were caught bugging the U.S. State Department. And Secretary of State Madeleine Albright had every reason to be furious. So Secretary Albright was trying to figure out, how do I handle this next meeting with the Russian foreign minister? This is Naomi Bagdonis, a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. So there were a few ways Secretary Albright could navigate this interaction, right? She could go nuclear, metaphorically speaking, and blow up diplomatic relations. Or she could simply give Russia's foreign minister the cold shoulder. But instead, she chose a third option. In that first meeting, after the bugging, Secretary Albright walked into the room wearing an enormous bug pin. <laughs> like, grand old pin of this huge bug on her uh, on her lapel like a and she walks in is and that the word a brooch like a brooch a brooch <laughs> yes, yes see exactly that much anymore, but yes a bug brooch yeah and uh, and she walked in and she looked at him she looked down at the brooch she looked back at him he looked at her he looked at the brooch and in her words she said he couldn't help but smile and it, it shifted the dynamic in the room and she said it was it was that opening that allowed them to have a more uh open and productive conversation about something that was really challenging, but they were sort of able to do so in a more productive way because it started with levity. Naomi tells this story in the book Humor Seriously, which honestly was one of the most useful and just delightful books I read all last year. It's about how everyone from the Secretary of State to an office manager to an Uber driver can use levity to their advantage. It may be the easiest way to appear more competent and trustworthy without doing any additional work. And I specialize in consulting organizations and coaching high-performance leaders on the intersection of humor and business. Wow. Yeah. It's, how are you going to top that? <laughs> well, if you could edit in a, a mic drop sound <laughs> after that, that would be great. And then we can just end it there. This is not, I, I do not want to follow that act. That other voice you hear is Michael Terry. I am a finance professional, generic white guy who has <laughs> worked in finance for over 25 years at some firms that you might know of, a firm called Bridgewater, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, 
uh, I started doing comedy as a hobby and it got to the point where I was doing it five or six nights a week after I got off work. I ended up having some modest successes. I was invited to audition for The Daily Show. Uh, I was a reporter for the Onion News Network, but ultimately much to mine and the world's chagrin, I did not become super famous um, before I came back to finance. Which means Michael has a lot of stories about using comedy in real life, in the workplace. And so does Naomi, who actually teaches how to do this. It turns out that humor is eminently learnable, which is the good news, because it's a skill that is desperately needed right now. Because most of us have fallen off a comedy cliff. You know, we're, we're in the midst of a mental health crisis. 89% of people said that their mental well-being had declined since the start of the pandemic. Uh, we know that there are high rates of burnout. Uh, people are feeling more disconnected than ever. And in that context, humor can be one of the most powerful and connecting things that we can do with, with each other at work. And so it's sort of what, what we need, one of the things that we need most now. Hmm. What do you think, Michael? I don't know what you two are talking about. Omicron, <laughs> extended isolation from one's friends, family, anything that brings you joy. I'm loving it. <laughs> you really come into your own. Totally, yeah. Michael is thriving. Really, He's thriving in this context. I've really blossomed, guys. But actually, this is one thing we can't entirely blame on the pandemic. It turns out the humor cliff has been around for a long time. So this is research from over 1.4 million people in 166 countries, data collected by Gallup. And these people were asked a really simple question, did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? And what we find is that at age 16, 18, 20, the answer is pretty consistently yes. And then right at age 23, people fall off a humor cliff. The answer becomes no. And you see this huge drop off, right? Right when people enter the workforce. Now, mm. the good news is if you dig into this data, things look up again around age 80. <laughs> so we have a lot to look forward to. Um, of course, the problem is our average life expectancy is 78. So it comes a bit a bit too right, late. The only people still alive are the people who think everything is hilarious. Yes. Okay, that sounds bleak, but don't worry. We're actually going to dedicate two episodes to learning how to harness humor because there's a lot of great material here. Even if you don't think of yourself as naturally funny, or maybe you're hilarious, but you work in a high-stress environment like Michael. By the end of this, I promise you'll be empowered to bring a little more levity into your life, whoever you are and whatever you do. And it may just extend your life expectancy. No joke. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. 
I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. We don't need science to know that laughter is good for us. But the way it changes our brain chemistry is pretty fascinating. When we laugh, we release endorphins, which give us a, a feeling similar to a runner's high. We're, we're sort of more energized, more able to bounce back quickly from setbacks. Uh, we lower our cortisol. So this is similar to 10 minutes of, of meditating. We feel calmer. We feel less stressed. And we release dopamine, which sort of gives us this pleasure hit uh, that we get from certain types of physical touch. And so in essence, as far as our brains are concerned, laughing is like exercising, meditating, and having sex at the same time, <laughs> but logistically easier. And we can do it from hundreds of miles away on a Zoom call like this. Oh, my God. You just sold laughter. Jeez. <laughs> wow. I'm totally okay. bought in. I am 100%. And you know, it's so funny because during the pandemic, you know, I'm, I'm always urging people to try to meet in person whenever they can, particularly because you can serve food, <laughs> which is like, which is like the low hanging fruit, right, uh -huh. of human interaction. But you can't do those things on Zoom. And what you're saying is, okay, this is one thing you can do on Zoom. Totally. You can, you can laugh at things, you can enjoy each other's sense of humor. Totally. Even if you're far away. Yes. You should somehow work yeah. uh, brain sex into the title of your next humor book, I think. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a suggestion from the peanut gallery. I, I, love, how, I love how Michael took that like long uh, bit about neuroscience and just turned it into brain sex. Maybe just the next book the is two. just called brain sex. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, no, that, that makes so much sense. And it's also so sad, isn't it, that kids laugh so much and then we just stop at some point. Like I remember probably the best wedding toast I ever heard. This guy said it was, he was like the best man. And he said, look, people will give you a lot of advice about how to stay married, but the best advice is don't stop being silly, like mm. preserve silliness like just goofiness. And I thought that was such good advice. Um, that couple ended up getting divorced, but just putting that aside. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. I thought it was great advice. <laughs> okay, so there's actually science to support exactly what, what you're talking about, Amanda, with this wedding toast. And it's not just because of what laughing does in the moment, but it's actually how it changes our perceptions of the relationship later. And so there was this great research done where researchers asked couples to reminisce about shared moments together. And in this study, they had couples reminisce about moments that were hard, uh, moments that were happy, so you know, positive memories together, and moments when they laughed together. And what researchers found was that couples who reminisced about moments of shared laughter versus moments that were just happy together reported being 23% more satisfied in their relationships. And this is just from reminiscing about moments when they had laughed together. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this is something that's super easy and free, which you could implement right now. Honestly, listening to this, I was thinking that for our next wedding anniversary, my husband and I should do this. We should, you know, throw out the roses and the fancy dinner and 
Well, I mean, no, we should still do those things, but we should also maybe just take a minute and reminisce about the things that made us laugh the hardest in the past year. Think about how much less expensive it is than therapy. Oh, my God. <laughs> and like more fun. Right. Seriously. I love that. So I guess one question I have for both of you is like, so both of you are sort of unusually comfortable with humor and know a lot about it and have done stand-up comedy and you're not normal, right? Let's just say that on many levels. But like for our listeners who would be terrified to do stand-up, most of them, what do you think are the biggest misunderstandings that lay people have about humor? That humor is about inventing something from thin air and trying to be funny. More mm. than that, it is about being truthful, about being observant, about being genuine and authentic about what's going on for you and in your life. And you'll find many of the most successful comedians, what they're doing is telling the truth about their lives. Now they're being exaggerated, they're using contrast and rule of three and building out the world. They have all these techniques, but at its core, humor is about being truthful. And so that's the first misconception is that it's really hard. It's about being funny or creating something clever from thin air. It's not. And then the second thing is, and this is what I tell my executives that I work with, don't worry about having the right thing to say. Focus on being in the right mindset. And we tell our students, we train them to navigate their lives on the precipice of a smile, looking for reasons to be delighted rather than disappointed. And when you shift your mindset in that way, you end up finding more humor and joy in the world, and you change how people interact back with you too. Mm, I love that. It was one of my favorite tips from the book is like, you don't actually have to be funny to use humor. Like you just have to see it around you and notice it Ex and, and kind of be alert to it. Exactly. It's Yeah, it's about looking at the world in a different way. And there's a psychological principle called the priming effect that says our brains are wired to see what we've been set up to expect. So in essence, we mm -hmm. find what we choose to look for. By the mm -hmm. way, you just gave me the subtitle for my autobiography, Life on the Precipice <laughs> of a Smile. Um, I love it. <laughs> um, I love that. All jokes aside, here's our next takeaway. Stop trying so hard. You don't need a spotlight and a punchline to be funny. In fact, that'll probably backfire. Instead, think of yourself as an audience member on the edge of your seat, eager to be delighted. Now, I don't have to tell you not to go overboard with this, right? You understand we're not looking for a belly laugh when a small chuckle is appropriate? Okay, good. The idea is just to look for the absurdity in life. If you keep your eyes open, it's all around you. And then once you're living on the precipice of a smile, humor is always close at hand, right in your back pocket. Some of the funniest moments that I've seen or been part of is when there's an incredibly tense situation and somebody's just open about how they feel about it. I'll give you an example. Um, I was in a meeting and a very senior person was berating a more junior person very aggressively. And for what felt like an, an hour, it was probably 10 minutes, but this person just would not stop. He had brought all of his demons to this conversation and he was he was unloading on this person and everyone else in the room was incredibly uncomfortable. And I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I interrupted the guy who was on a tirade and I was looking like I was taking notes and I said, hold on a second. I just want to make sure I get this right. 
you think he did a bad job. And <laughs> most of the people started laughing. The guy who had been exploding actually stormed out of the room, um, which was, by the way, a relief to me, at least. I think probably <laughs> most of the people in the room. But that wasn't some, like, finely crafted joke. I just was acknowledging the fact that we were in this room. Something incredibly uncomfortable was happening that we were all aware of. And I was just trying to do something to to end it. And... In a, hmm. in a roundabout way, acknowledging just how awkward it was. And did you ever hear from that guy again? He and I did not have the best working relationship. But <laughs> as you might imagine from the story, he didn't have the best working relationships with a lot of people. So, right. um, look, it's not to say we can talk about it. The other side of it is, which is there are risks to to trying to be funny at work. And God knows I've I've <laughs> made some mistakes. But... As Naomi was saying, being honest and authentic is often the best way to be funny. I love that. And humor shows this, this form of intellectual agility and perspective. And so in that moment, so you think he did a bad job, right? Michael's just naming what is what is going through everyone's heads, but no one else is quite sure how to address it. And it, this it's why people code humorous people as smarter, as more competent, as higher in status, because it takes courage to name the truth in that way. And it takes mental agility and intellectual agility to do so in a way that helps the conversation move forward rather than stops in its tracks. Now, in that moment, he did walk out of the room, so perhaps it stopped in its tracks. But, you know, maybe that's what was needed in the moment. Um, oftentimes you can... Right, right. Like, in a way, you're sticking up for that junior employee without making things even more tense, right? Exactly. Yeah. Humor it oftentimes allows you to say things that are harder or more difficult to say if you if you said them without humor. And of course, this is why, uh, you know, The Daily Show and so many of these shows that, that tackle really serious issues with humor are so successful as well. No, it's true. It's like, um, it comes at it sideways, right? And it's a way that surprises everyone. And that creates like an opening, like a spark of curiosity and, and surprise that everybody's sharing yes. at the same yes. time. Um, Michael, when did you, did you realize right away that you could use comedy at work? I mean, Bridgewater in particular, I think is, isn't that like the biggest venture fund in the world? I mean, it's, these are known as pretty intense places, right? It's the largest hedge fund in the world and the most stressful years of my career. And I'm not a young guy anymore, we're at Bridgewater just because it's such a high performance oriented firm. But hmm. one reason I was hired um, and survived and thrived at, at some of these firms is because of humor. Yeah. Huh. The, the first part of using humor on the job is getting the job. And uh-huh. anytime I've ever interviewed for a job, I've been the one giving the interview or I've been on the receiving end, I'm thinking of only two things. One is, can, can this person do the job? And the second thing, frankly, is, do I like this person? It's those mm-hmm. two things. And there, in this day and age, there are plenty of people who can do the job. But the whole question about, do I like this person? Because I'm going to have to spend an unreasonable amount of time with them. Um, that's a very different question. And so what I've found is, over the years... I use humor in interviews, and and sure, there are many instances where it has not worked, but there have been a number of other key moments when it has worked, and and I've been told afterwards that's how I stood out. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. I love that. 
One of the exercises our students do at Stanford is they rewrite their bios with levity. And this is not full on funny, but oftentimes it's a lighthearted line at the end. And we've done some research with those bios where we found that the you know very serious version of your bio versus the one with a bit of levity, people actually have different perceptions of those two people. And we, of course, cleanse out um, you know, gender or any background details, anything like that. And uh, and people who read the slightly humorous bio rate that person as uh, more intelligent, more uh, desirable as their colleague, more desirable as their leader, and most importantly, better looking. Yes, <laughs> That's without even seeing a photo. <laughs> it also stumbles on what I think is if if I gave had any much advice to give people is. If you're trying to be funny at work, one of the best targets is yourself. Mm. It's it's pretty easy to make fun of yourself and not offend people. And at work, there are all kinds of riskier topics or no-go zones. And so if you're thinking about trying to be funny at work, starting with yourself is, I think, a pretty good place to, to start. Self-deprecation, if you are in a high-status role is super powerful. It's incredibly status enhancing. And in fact, uh, you know, one of the guests in our class was Dick Costolo, former CEO of Twitter. And Dick actually has a very, uh, we'll talk about humor styles in a bit, but he has a very sniper-like humor style. So he loves to make fun of other people. But he knew that when, as CEO, the more powerful thing was to self-deprecate and to show his own vulnerability. And so what he would do during these all-hands meetings is he would have other employees come onto stage with him who he knew would, you know, he had good banter with and they could really tear into him. And he'd say, hey, listen, I want you to treat me on stage the same way that you treat me behind the scenes. You make fun of me a lot. You you know, all these things, I want you to do that on stage. And so it was a way for him to show vulnerability, there to be some, uh, you know, self-deprecation because he showed that he could take a joke about himself. Um but in that context where he's CEO, it's incredibly status enhancing. Now, where people get in trouble, and this is particularly important for people who are in sort of middle management or earlier in their careers, is if you over-index on self-deprecation and you're not the highest status person in the room, then people can actually code that as genuine insecurity. This is a really important takeaway. Essentially, self-deprecation is a good go-to because it's less likely to offend anyone. However, it comes with a big asterisk because it isn't a great tactic if you aren't the highest status person in the room. When we come back, Naomi's gonna break down the four styles of humor so you can figure out which one is yours and use it to your advantage. Stick around. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. We're back with Michael Terry, an amateur comic who works in the funniest of places, finance, and Naomi Bagdonis, co-author of Humor Seriously. Naomi and her co-author, Dr. Jennifer Aker, have been researching humor for over a decade now, and they've identified four distinct styles of humor. Sniper, magnet, stand-up, and sweetheart. Michael and I happen to be snipers, which we found out by taking Naomi and Jennifer's humor-style quiz online. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to discover your own style. So first, you've got the sniper. Snipers are the best humor style, right, Amanda and Michael? Obviously. (laughs) Clearly. Snipers are dry, (laughs) sarcastic, edgy. They're masters of the unexpected dig. So think uh, Michelle Wolf or Bill Burr. Charlie Munger in business is a great uh, sniper. He once said uh, in a public interview, I would rather throw a viper down my shirt than hire a compensation consultant. Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. So this is sniper style humor. (laughs) Um, Opposite the sniper, you've got the magnet. So magnets are expressive, charismatic, uplifting. Um, They're risk takers and sort of natural entertainers. So think Jimmy Fallon, Kenan Thompson. It's fun to have fun, funny friends. Yeah, and funny people. We did bits all day long. It's the best. Like, whenever we're able to, because we don't get to see the elders much, you know what I'm saying? Like, once you leave the show. <laughs> Thank you. You know, so it's nice to get around and, like... <laughs> I'm the elder now, one of the wow. Elder, our elders, you know? Or for another magnet in business, think of Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of the clothing company Spanx. She mailed the head buyer at Neiman Marcus a single shoe with a note that said, just trying to get my foot in the door, do you have five minutes to chat? (laughs) Uh, And he did, and Spanx were on the shelves in their first major department store within a couple months. So that's magnet-style humor. Next, you've got the stand-up. So stand-ups are bold, irreverent, confident in front of a crowd, not afraid to ruffle a few feathers for a laugh. So think um, Sarah Cooper, Ronnie Chang. Okay, first of all, let me get this straight. They say China in the debate, so you go to Chinatown in New York. So when they mention Mexico, do you send someone to Taco Bell? Um, Jeff Bezos definitely has some some stand-up style humor. Jeff Bezos? Yeah, so check. Really? So I see that one coming. Some, huh? some stand-up style humor. So there was this um, photo that went viral of Leonardo DiCaprio locking eyes with Jeff Bezos' girlfriend at a party. And it went totally viral. And right after that, Jeff Bezos tweeted, hey, Leo, come over here. And it was a picture of him standing next to a cliff. <laughs> so that is bold, irreverent, not afraid to ruffle a few feathers. So so in other words, the team of people that Jeff Bezos hires to run his Twitter feed are, sta- are stand-ups. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, perfect. There you go. Um, all right. So opposite the stand-up is the sweetheart. Sweethearts are earnest, understated, warm, 
Their humor is emotionally attuned and it's always aimed at bringing people together. So think uh, Melissa Villasenor on SNL, Tig Notaro, um, Satya Nadella is a great example of, of sweetheart style humor in business. When you go to the, your annual shareholder meetings, do you get a standing ovation for what you've done? No, I get a lot of people asking me, hey, look, go come home and fix my computer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the four styles. And what's important for each of these is they each have strengths and they also have risks to watch out for. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Yep, there you go. So for the stand-ups and snipers, Michael and Amanda, you boldly shed light on truths that are hard to surface without humor. Right, that story that Michael told earlier is a great example of saying what's true. It was a really bold thing to do, and you were you were able to do it in this sort of one-liner sniper comment. But because you are so bold and so thick-skinned, your humor can often offend in the wrong context, or or if it's not quite attuned to the audience. Because snipers and stand-ups build intimacy through teasing. So we'll often hear a sniper say, listen, if I'm making fun of you, it means I really like you, right? So this is this is one of our styles that builds intimacy through teasing. They can, again, if they're not careful, they can do what's called punching down in comedy. So if they make fun of someone of lower status, that can actually feel a bit alienating if you don't have the right relationship. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. No idea. Naomi, remind me which humor style you are. I'm a magnet. So my my mm. natural style is a bit more it's pro, it's why I was drawn to improv but one thing I've really worked on is flexing my style based on the context. Um when I was early in my career I got really good at sniper style humor. And then I started teaching at Stanford and I was teaching MBA students. I remember my first year of teaching, second class, I was at the front of the room, I was presenting and one of my students said something out of turn. And I, I can't remember what I said, but it was something biting, right? Something that I would have said to a senior exec 20 years my senior, and it would have mm -hmm. crushed. And the, the air left the room. It was like I had kicked this student's dog in front of everyone, mm -hmm. and the whole room sort of gasped. And, uh, and it was this realization for me, oh, right, what what worked there isn't going to work here. I need to recognize mm -hmm. that now I'm, now I'm the high-status person in the room, Great, I can let my magnet style humor come out a lot more. So I, I am yeah. totally unafraid to be um, silly in the classroom and it becomes a superpower for people who are in higher status roles. We're gonna go deep on humor fails in our next episode, but for now, here's our last tip. As your status changes in your career or from one room to another, your humor style should evolve too. You never wanna punch down, which means you need to be aware of who exactly is up and who isn't. Now, I do want to mention, because we talked about the risks for stand-ups and snipers, but for the magnets and sweethearts joining, um, I do want to mention those risks. So magnets and sweethearts are obviously masters at creating connection through humor. They tend to use humor that lifts people up, brings them together, um, rather than more teasing style humor. But because magnets and sweethearts tend to lean on self-deprecation to lift other people, we find that they're most at risk of over-indexing on it, which, as we talked about earlier, is especially risky if you're in a lower status role. And so the, the reason these humor styles are so powerful is they help us not just get in touch with our sense of humor, which lots of us have, have lost touch with in the working world, 
and use it more adeptly and authentically, but also be better to shift our style based on our read of the room, our read of the status dynamics, and our read of what other people's styles are uh, in the moment. Yeah. So you're saying that it's important to know your style so that you can more quickly gauge what your weaknesses and strengths are going to be in a given room. Exactly. Michael, do you have any stories like that? It definitely resonates for me. I mean, look, I've, I don't know if it's just that I like to make jokes about cancer or what, but, oh um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, the number of stories I have about inadvertently alienating people would take, that's a whole podcast that we're going to do a spinoff series <laughs> called, <laughs> called, called Michael stepped in it comma again. Yeah. It's not, it's a, it is a very long and painful list. On the bright side, you don't have to wait for Michael Steps in It again, the show, because next week we're jumping into absolute fails, where you tried to be funny and at best crickets, and at worst, uh, you kind of offended someone. You won't want to miss it. And meanwhile, if you want to hear a great example of a sweetheart comedian, check out our episode with Tig Notaro called How to Confront a Crazy Neighbor. It'll make you smile. What's your favorite office humor that got a laugh? Or what joke totally bombed? We want to hear about it. Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And that's also where you can tell us about any other problem that needs solving. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Special thanks to Amber Smith. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>